0: This conversation originated when Dr. Bob McCauley, who I consider a friend, reached out to me to say that a patient's father was eager to bring the father voice and experience to families and clinicians of children living with serious illness. His father, Jaris, had parented his daughter Faith for 18 years and advocated for her from diagnosis at age 4 with osteosarcoma through 23 major surgeries, side effects, setbacks, and complications until Faith's death shortly after her 18th birthday. Here we talk about the role of the father as primary caregiver, learning patients and how to work with the medical team, as well as Jeris' experience that clinicians typically deferred first to Faith's mom, a bias he hopes clinicians will overcome. We talk about the late introduction of palliative care and Dr. McCauley's role in hearing what mattered most to the family and helping Faith get home for her 18th birthday and the last few weeks of her life. We talk about the confounding consequences of Faith's cancer treatments. I hope you will listen through to the end as Jaris reconciles all that was so cruel with all that was and is the forever light of Faith in her 18 years.
1: Courageous Parents Network has the deep conviction that parents and providers of seriously ill children have the same goal to give children the best possible chances to live their best possible lives. In all that we do, CPN strives to help these parents and providers mutually understand each other, communicate more effectively, and make decisions together. In so doing, CPN strives to improve the course of care, both given and received.
2: I vividly remember the first time I met Faith. So I direct the pediatric palliative care team at OHSU in Portland, Oregon. And when we walk into a room when we've been consulted on a new patient, it's not like we're unprepared. Like we do pediatric palliative care, it's what we do for a living. I don't expect to shoot the breeze and chat about the weather. I don't think that I in 15 years of practice in palliative care have ever experienced the palpable pain that I felt when I walked into that room. Part of it, I was aware of my own issues walking in. Specifically, Faith is almost exactly the same age as my oldest daughter. She has three siblings. My daughter has three siblings. So I was very much aware that while I didn't know anything about Faith's story, I knew something about girls her age and was very able to sort of sense the contrast between what she was going through and what my daughter who was going to high school was going through. I was with a couple of members of our team and a couple of learners. We had a medical student and a resident with us. And I just remember looking at Faith and her talking to us and sharing very openly about her journey and what brought her to that place and where she was in that moment. As someone who was battling cancer, who was experiencing intense pain, who had felt overlooked by the medical establishment and questioned and doubted and minimized and was dealing with more than anybody should ever deal with. Like any one of those is more than anyone should ever deal with, let alone when you're her age, let alone when you put them all together. Even just... Thinking about it, I can like viscerally remember what that felt like in that space of wanting to help it in some way and being in awe of all that she had overcome already and what she was experiencing in that moment.
3: We killed the cancer, but the treatments between the chemo, the radiation, and 23 major surgeries end up killing her body. And yet this beauty that we saw transition and transform as a, as basically kind of an infant, it just carried on and continued to occur that through these surgeries, through these procedures, and through all the setbacks she had physically, you know, it hit her so hard emotionally, and yet her bravery and her strength just was compounded. Her maturity and understanding her life situation and how she interacted with providers would just continue to grow. And, yeah. Her kindness and compassion, she'd be sitting there in major pain and yet would actually grab the hand of a provider, a nurse, a doctor who was clearly upset and in Faith's moment of pain would actually grab them and say, are you okay? I'm sorry, I'm upsetting you. And that was Faith. She was a special soul.
0: Jerris, can you say more about the secondary traumas that she'd been experiencing, feeling overlooked? What was her experience? What had happened?
3: Her bone cancer was in her L3 vertebrae. Within first early six months, she had three major back surgeries to either initially remove the mass and then they had to remove the full vertebral body and then reconstructive surgery. So imagine a four-year-old at that point, moving to five, having three major back surgeries in five months. And then on top of that, multiple rounds of very, very aggressive and what we were told at that point, adult doses of chemo. And it just, it hit her so hard. So just even emotionally be able to process what was going on, right? And then from those surgeries and all those treatments, she ended up having nerve damage in her left leg that caused all of her muscles in her left leg to atrophy to where she could not walk you know, normally. But then what happened is because she had to walk with a unique gait, it ended up on her strong leg, her right leg, she ended up damaging her right knee to the point by the time she was 15, she had had six major knee surgeries. And then the damage from the chemo or the radiation, we don't know which one it was, continued to progress to where internally we started having functional issues where she wasn't able to have regular bowel movements. We had to start helping her with bowel situations. And she was on high doses of basically like X-lax and stuff to help her go. And then on top of that, then she started losing the ability to feel and sense when she had to P and so her bladder would fill. She wouldn't lose control and, and in that way, but she would get distended and very uncomfortable. And this was all progressing from the time she was four or five years old to the time that we lost her at, at 18. So when you think about all those issues, and then she was having hearing loss and then it just compounded. And then her body started to fail in its ability to even heal. So like these knee surgeries that she had, when they took the sutures out after the designated time period, her her incision just opened up. And then the screws actually started working out of her leg. She was in a wound care facility being treated on a regular basis for weeks, just trying to get this thing to heal. And none of the conventional treatments could even get her skin to heal. She had an open wound for months. And so these were just all compounding physical issues. And then imagine when we think about the challenges that our our youth have today in body image, and that's both male and female, but let's just focus on female. And you have a young girl Going through her adolescence, going into her teen years, her body image, and especially today with all the social platforms around all these young girls her age that are posting videos around dancing and fitness, and all of her siblings were all very strong, competitive athletes, and Faith tried. She tried so hard, but she couldn't run well. All these things were going on around life that she was trying to live, but yet emotionally, she was being told all the time she couldn't do it because her body couldn't do it. Her will wanted to highly intelligent but her body could not keep up. So then as we were trying to treat all these different issues, she would go to her different providers. And I remember one specifically when Faith was talking about the pain she had at night and needing assistance in sleeping because she wasn't sleeping. And he truly just diminished her and said, well, you're probably just spending too much time on your phone, here's a book to read. And a book to read around sleep cleansing and how to prepare for bed and all this. Meanwhile, she's writhing in pain at night, and I mean, there's multiple situations where faith would go to providers, and even with what ended up taking her from us is heart failure, and yet just a year before, we had met with cardiologists, and, and they were completely saying, oh, you're fine, the, the lightheadedness, you're fine, the queasy feelings, the out of balance, you're okay, and, and continue to be basically put off, and she would do her part to try to do good self-care. She was extremely healthy on her eating. She would try to work out. And yet when she would go to different providers to get help quite often, she was literally dismissed as it not being real. It's in her head, it's psychological, which they probably at some point begin to become some of that as well. But it wasn't the core, it wasn't the root. And what we struggled with both her mom and I and Faith was to get people to actually invest the time to go through the symptoms to get to the root causes of what was actually triggering some of her symptoms and her problems. And we just felt like so often we would get no call back from people for weeks and months. And sometimes they just wouldn't even call back or we would get passed from provider to provider. Oh, well, it's not really as you probably should go over here. Another three months waiting to get in. And this happened repetitively to the point where she, especially as she became 16, 17, we started seeing more of that teen spirit come out of, you know, basically F them, they don't even believe me. She was getting more and more angry because people did not listen and would not care. The first thing people would always say with her, you're so complicated. And that would immediately make her feel like here I am a problem again. It made her mad, it made her mom and I mad because she wasn't complicated. She she was faith. How can you dismiss this person who has actually been through so much? more than most people will ever face in their life. And she's still smiling, she's still trying, she's trying to live a normal life. And then you diminish her immediately as soon as she walks on the door. It was just so angering to see and experience. And you have to find this balance as your advocate that you need to continue to advocate and escalate it in a way that you get the right attention without alienating the providers and then you're just passed along and ignored.
2: When I hear jurists talk about being face advocate. Her dad and her advocate i've heard stories like this before where people in my role have questioned and doubted and said stuff like well you shouldn't be in this much pain with the sort of unspoken end of the sentence being thus you are not as opposed to i just don't understand and because it's a hard thing for physicians to say and I think that's one thing that we do in palliative care. We recognize that you know, pain is what a patient says it is in the way they say it is. And also we talk a lot in palliative care about total pain, that it's not just nerve endings in a physical part of your body. It's what your life is doing and what your soul is doing. And it just felt to me like Faith was getting hit from every single side, dealing with cancer. She was dealing with growing up in a culture that had expectations and fighting valiantly to achieve so many things, despite all the obstacles she was facing. And then to go to people who were expected and should be supportive of her and should seek to understand her and should seek to help her. And then questioning the legitimacy of what her experience was both with regard to cancer and pain and in other areas as well. That was a time where people should have rallied around her as opposed to giving her more things to overcome when we should be taking down the obstacles, not building them up. That infuriated me. And it wasn't because people you know, weren't trying. I don't mean to cast aspersions. I just think that we, as physicians, sometimes if we can't explain something, it's hard for us to say, I don't understand, as opposed to, it's more tempting to say, well, that must not be the case because there's no explanation for it.
3: So the way I was able to try to manage my anger and frustration, and you have to throw in their fear, the way I tried helping Faith as well, there's no silver bullet, right? To me, it was a journey that I went on with Faith, as did her mom, and in many ways, her siblings as well. Her journey affected the whole family. The kids grew up in hospitals. For me, with managing the anger, it happened very early on with the very first surgery before we even knew she had cancer. We knew there was a bony mass on her back. They did surgery and removed it. And in the PICU, right after the surgery, this was my first experience with anything like this, And I walk in when I'm first allowed into the PICU and I see she, I just, I remember certain data points. And I remember she was 44 pounds. She was four years old. She's laying on this bed. There's more tubes running in and out of her that I can even imagine. Nobody prepped me for that. Not necessarily that they should have, but I think it'd be a good thing. It's such a shock to walk in and see your baby that way. She had been in surgery for 10 hours. So with the fluids they pumped into her, she didn't look like my child. She was all swollen and there was more pumps on the wall going into her and it was overwhelming. I was managing through all that, but then we had a shift change with nurses and a new provider came in and Faith was starting to wake up at one point. She was complaining. Of course, she said that she had to go to the bathroom and this is, she was four and a half years old. What was surprising to me is the nurse caregiver immediately started lifting up her body to put a bedpan underneath, even though she had just had spinal surgery, this is the very early stage of my journey and I quite quickly, physically prevented him from doing so, pushed him out of the room and I I handled it poorly. I I reacted as a dad and I did. I grabbed him by the shirt and I removed him from the room and I told him he wasn't coming back in that what he just did caused her more pain and put something at risk. And he should have been more aware of what her case was before he started moving her like that. I was then coached that if I did something like that again I'd be removed from the hospital. So I had to learn a quick way of managing my frustrations better. I share that story because that's really reacting as a dad. And and through that first journey, I realized that I had to compartmentalize my feelings as a dad because I had to become a care provider, a caregiver and her advocate. And I couldn't do both effectively. And I needed to do the advocacy and the caregiver and only let dad come through every now and then. That was my approach. Right or wrong, that was my approach because dad was gonna be filled with emotions and protection, the caregiver side of me had to be much more kind of logical non-emotional and more practical. And I had, I felt like I had to build relationships with every caregiver, whether it was the nursing staff, pharmaceutical, whatever, I had to build these relationships so that when I did feel the dad's side coming out, the frustration, the anger, I could channel it then to fostering it into communication and collaboration and to try to work through these issues that I was seeing. And so then it became a 13 year journey of doing that. I had to learn patience and I had to learn my own strength to manage what I was feeling in order to be there for her. And then the way that kind of transcended into faith, I believe, is she would see me reacting, hopefully calmly, and then she too would do that same way. But I also believe that I learned it more from her than she did for me because of her nature, because of her character, her soul, she truly was just such a kind person that even when people made her mad, she would express it to me or her mom, but she wouldn't express it to them. She would say, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to be mean to them. So she would vent through us, but then she would show up just golden, just so kind. And there'd be a few situations where she would tell providers, I don't feel like you're listening to me. You're, you're ignoring me. You're ignoring what I'm saying. I need you to hear me. And that was more as she got into her older teens that she learned to express her way. But we would coach her in that way too, is you need to advocate for yourself that as you're getting older and her mom and I would try to prepare her, obviously not knowing that we're gonna lose her at 18, we're trying to prepare her for becoming her own advocate. And we would share with her, you you have to stand the ground. You can't always be nice. You don't need to be mean, but you do need to be forthright. She demonstrated that very well I don't know if this sounds right, but what was fun is Faith and I developed such a connection to where when she was kind of like done with a provider, whether it was a nurse or a doctor, she was just fed up. All she had to do was give me a look and I knew and I would remove them. There would be situations like I would walk into a room and i had been out for whatever reason. Somebody was bothering her, pestering her, whatever, and she didn't want it at that time. As soon as I walked in, there was just this one look. She would just look at me and I just knew I'd say, okay, you're done and move them. It was fun in the way that we had we been through so much together, that there was just that unspoken connection that we just knew.
2: Zerus, the fierce advocate, he was always for faith. I'm going to take a little bit of a tangent. He may not actually remember the first time he and I spoke. I'd be curious because he had so much else going on. But I remember when I got called in to do a consult on faith, I dropped by a couple of times, and neither of the times was convenient. Something was going on in her room, and you know we didn't want to sort of go barging in. And so I was talking to a lot of people. There were a ton of people involved in her care. You know, you had the ICU staff, you had the cardiologist, you had the pain team, you had the survivorship group from the oncology. Everybody was involved, but nobody seemed to be talking directly to each other. They were writing chart notes, and... You know this person would talk to that person who would then talk to this person it was like that game of telephone that we all played yeah. and we all know how that works out and so i'm like i can't talk to the patient right now but i said maybe we should all talk with each other to open the lines of communication so i'm trying to facilitate a meeting with everybody and then one day i get this call on our voicemail at the office from someone who explains that he's faith's dad and he doesn't know who the heck we are and why are we organizing a meeting about his kid? And he said it in a very nice way, but I could kind of hear in the tone that there was a, like, he's trying really hard to be nice, which I really appreciate, but it's sort of like, you know, Papa Bear is coming out, like who the heck are you and why are you involved in my kid's care? And my normal process in that situation, I called him back and I got his voicemail. And my normal process would be to leave our office number. And our procedure at work is, If you call our office, it automatically goes to voicemail and then pages somebody to pick the voicemail. And I'm hearing this gentleman's voice. I'm like, he's not going to want to leave another voicemail, but he wants an answer. And so I said, this is so my name and this is what I do. And this is my cell phone number and you can call me back. Let's just say my boundaries aren't really as good as they should be sometimes, but I don't normally do that. But I'm like, I think that was the beginning of me as a dad sort of hearing a tone, you know, and Jerry, as you might be getting the impression, he has an authority about him. You know, he's not, you know, a shrinking violet off in the corner. And I got that. I understood that. And I, I don't know if I went through the process in my head, but I'm like, if I'm in that position, what do I want? You know, I want someone to call me and say, you call, this is how you reach me directly. And we will talk. And so I think that sometimes we need to sort of try to imagine what someone else is going through, even though we never will succeed, but we can try. And there's sort of basic human things that we can do. Like, you need to reach me. This is how you do that. And maybe it's not the healthiest thing to do all the time, but you sort of need to, if everyone else is, or other people sometimes are putting up obstacles, maybe you need to sort of smooth out the road and say, this is a straight shot. You don't need to fight on this one. We will at least talk. In palliative care, we sometimes don't really stay in our lane very well. I don't actually know if we have a lane to stay in. You know, we sort of butt into other people's lanes. There were so many people who had their own piece of the puzzle, you know, that these guys were dealing with the heart and these guys were dealing with the spine and these guys were, you know, and I think what we tried to do was hear where faith was coming from because she wasn't just a heart and a spine, like she was this amazing person who was going through so much and then trying to figure out what to do with that. And even though we couldn't fix things, we could honor that, that she wasn't just a bunch of component parts. She was a person, an amazing person, and just to honor what her journey was.
0: Why was palliative care introduced when it was? Obviously she had so many complications along the way. Bob, were you the first palliative care clinician or had other members of your team come in?
1: I
2: was on service as the doctor on our team when we were first consulted for Faith. And I think it came very late in her life, probably two months before she died. Does that sound right, Jaris, or thereabouts? It was about seven weeks. Her pain was becoming even more uncontrollable. Her heart function was deteriorating much more quickly than had been anticipated. There were also additional complexities, specifically that she was having these events that were just palpably difficult to watch. Like if something is difficult to watch, it must be a million times harder to actually experience oneself her whole body was racked with muscle spasms on top of everything else. And you can imagine with her spinal issues to begin with, like if you have spinal issues to begin with and then your whole body gets racked with muscle spasms, that's just making an incredibly hard situation infinitely harder. And it took us a while to figure out what was not causing those because they look like seizure-like activity. And then they were diagnosed as non epileptiform seizures, so so they were not caused in a sense by neural connections, but by reliving of trauma, of psychological trauma. I think that the combination of all that, of uncontrollable pain, of heart function that was probably going to limit significantly how long she lived, and the overlay of this incredible traumatic response that she was having led people to Say that obviously we need all hands on deck to try to do everything we can. And also recognizing that time, especially from a heart
3: perspective, was probably drawing short. This was the first that I'd heard about palliative care. And it was on a Tuesday afternoon that we had a meeting with the cardio team from both the pediatric side and the adult side because she was so close to 18 at that point. And they told us that her heart was failing because of her overall general health condition, she was not a candidate for transplant or artificial or anything like that. She, she wouldn't make it. And that we had months, not years. That was the first time. And I believe that date was January 16th. That was the first time we'd heard anything to the point of, we're this far gone or, or this close to losing her. And that's when palliative care was first introduced. And, and I do remember now the exchange that Bob mentioned earlier about the phone call myself and her mom were the only constants, right, for face care, and we had so many people in and out. And it was a bit of a cluster all the time of trying to sort through who are you, what are you doing? And then Bob came in and started rounding people for us. And that was so critical at that time because when you get the news that your child is dying and you have months, not years, the last thing that I really had energy to do was to be herding cats. That was on a Tuesday midday. That night or whatever, or actually it was very early the next Wednesday morning, about 4 a.m. We don't know why but her heart failed again. And we had to take life-saving steps to stabilize her and put her on a particular medicine that helped basically stimulate her heart to pump. Otherwise she wouldn't have made it through the morning. Through further exam, that same day, her mom and I were told, now we have weeks, not months. And that's when the interaction with Bob and team increased. And our goal moved from trying to extend her life, to trying to keep her comfortable and get her home. And our, our mission that um, my feeling was with Bob, the partnership that he gave me was, we we were on hell-bent on a mission. She wasn't gonna die in a hospital. Wasn't gonna happen. We had to get her home. And so we had to stabilize her, and it took about a week, and Bob worked with the team to, to help get her stabilized and get arrangements. And then on Monday, January 25th, 3.30 p.m., we rolled out of the hospital, the ambulance, And we had to carry her in to the house. Bob and I stayed in contact via text and call until I lost her on February 20th.
0: She got home.
3: She got home. She got home. She was with her pets. She was in her bed. She was surrounded by her family, friends came by. She, she passed. Her birthday is February 7th, so she passed on the 20th, so 13 days later. So as a family, we went back and forth. Do we, do we celebrate her birthday? Do we not celebrate her birthday? What do we do? Because we didn't, she knew she was dying. I mean, when, when we got the news on January 16th that she had months, not years, the doctors asked, and I think actually it might have been you, Bob, that asked, do you, do you want to tell her? Do you want us to tell her? And Faith and I always had a, a, back to when she was little, we had a pinky promise that I would always be very honest with her. So it had to be, had to be me, it had to be her mom and I. So I sat on the bed and told her that she was dying. Do that as a parent. By the time we got her home, she, I mean, she knew, you know, we were just home a short period of time. So we were weighing this notion of her birthday or not. And we knew she was also not fully aware of everything going on, both because she was fading in the meds. Her mom was very adamant, you know, we, we need to do this. and And it was, I'm glad that she was. We put together just a quick little family celebration and it was hard, but it was, it was good to do. She knew she turned 18 and then we lost her a little bit later. I feel there's such a strong need for the industry and for fathers, for families, to understand the role that a dad can play in advocacy and care for a child it's a choice and it's not for everybody right each person deals with these types of difficulties differently and some people just can't and i get that but what i found and the reason why i'm so passionate about it quite frankly is in our society the mom is seen as the primary caregiver but there's a lot of dads out there that are very active as we went through all her surgeries i always had my laptop out i was tracking what the care was what the meds were what meds we gave to counteract the side effects of other meds. I was the constant and I, I participated in rounds. And I think that that's so important for fathers to hear that you have a role in this. And despite society and norms around mom does that stuff and dads are just in the background, we need to create a safe place for dads in that way. And we need to start shifting the industry from a healthcare provider point of view that when you're dealing with parents in the room and Both parents are there, you talk to both parents. To me, we have to do a better job of recognizing both parents, respecting both parents in that way, including them, engaging the father as much as we engage the mother. And we have to create a safe environment for dads to actually show up. And then we have to give them some tools and skills on how to do so. You can't come in and and react like I shared before with the emotion of a dad. You have to react with the emotion and the logic of a caregiver. You can't come in thumping your chest and being the biggest person in the room. You have to come in with that spirit of partnership and collaboration and seeking to understand and then work through things. We definitely have to create an avenue for dads in that space.
0: There's a reason why the default is to pivot towards mom. I guess my question for you, Bob, is how do we unprogram that?
2: I think that we're used to dealing more with moms by virtue of, I always struggle with this because it's going to come out as a gross generalization, but just in terms of probabilities, it's more likely that a mom is going to be, and if it's a mom and dad dyad parent group, then it's more common in my experience for moms to be present more frequently in the hospital. So there's that piece. And I agree with, All that we've said before about not making assumptions about why that is or casting aspersions or making the false assumption potentially that the dad is not involved or that dad is not aware. So I think there's that piece. I think there are other pieces too. One is, and again, gross generalization coming. In my experience, moms and dads often generally react differently to certain situations. I can't count the number of times people have said something like, you know, dad's kind of quiet. He doesn't say much the unspoken assumption is there's not much going on there. And I'm like, no, there's a whole lot going on there, but maybe he's just not revealing it for all the world to see in real time. There's a lot of work that's been done in our field about what it means to be a good parent and asking parents, what does it mean for you to be a good parent? And generally speaking, again, another generalization, there are two big groups of thought about this. One is being a good parent is making good medical decisions on behalf of my child. And the other is being a good parent is making sure my child feels loved. Now Those are not mutually exclusive. It's not either or there's some balance there. But studies have also shown that mothers tend to be in the second group and fathers tend to be in the first group, like not always. And so I think there's a temptation to sort of do the problem solving with dad and provide the emotional support to the mom. The other thing too is, and this is speaking as a male physician, I think that It is a little bit more complicated when you're dealing, like I'm going to say it kind of colloquially with guys. I'm a tall guy. I'm aware of my presence in a room. I'm aware of gender and power imbalances. And so there are female members of my team who are much more likely to go and give a mom a big hug than I am, because I don't know how that's going to be received, even if I feel called to that. And I think that it can be harder to know what to do with that. Like, what what does this person need? Do they need answers? Do they need a hug? Do they need time? Do they need someone just to give them a place in silence to honor what's going on with their family? I just think that that adds a, a whole
3: new wrinkle and complexity that sometimes it's harder to understand what to do with that. If I could, even building upon that, I agree with everything Bob said one component of a larger issue that in society, we still paint men into a corner of being non-emotional, non-feeling. You're not allowed to. It's not safe. Again, through real experience of my journey in clinical situations, whether we got bad news or we're going through a hard moment in, in a hospital room, providers would turn to mom and say, are, how are you doing? Okay. A hand on the shoulder and turn on and walk out the door with no acknowledgement of me even being there or that I'm sitting there crying, or that I'm feeling the same pain or fear that mom is. Her mom and I have a good relationship where we understood the dynamics, we worked well together through all of that, and her mom's a wonderful mom. We just created a natural connection in how we navigated all of that and handoffs and stuff. It's an empty feeling to be feeling this, the same or similar, right, fear, and sadness that the other parent is, and yet not being acknowledged at all. It's wrong. Just because you're big of stature and you're a man doesn't mean that you don't feel it. It's the wrong assumption. And we need to start acknowledging that more. What mattered to me through my whole journey with care providers of any type was character. What really mattered for me, what I looked for was that partner who met me where I was at, who understood what we were trying to do and would push me where I needed to be pushed if I was, you know, either expecting too much or not understanding. They worked with me and and didn't try managing me. And definitely don't dismiss me. That's not going to go well.
0: Bob, you're a trained palliative care doctor. You've had training to do it and you've been practicing. You have your 10,000 touches. What would you say, though, to the clinicians who are not trained in palliative care, and don't have the 10,000 touches, but are going to be in that room and need and want to do right, is there a prompt for the pause and the what might really be going on here? Is that the prompt? Especially when things are going so fast.
2: If I were to give some advice to people who don't do this for a living, but are dedicated and compassionate and want to provide the best possible care to their patients. A couple of things come to mind. One is trying to understand not just what the surface expression of something is, but what the motivation is, especially on a parent side. So you know, a parent who is taking us a little bit by surprise. So instead of being sort of more kind of receiving and deferential, but is a little more assertive, and this is what I need for my kid, especially if they have the stature that Jairus has physically. Don't just look at the surface. You know, look at what like what's driving this person. What what's in their heart? Why are they saying what they're saying? Maybe they're frustrated because they don't feel understood. Maybe they are adamant because they made a promise to their kid that they need to make sure that they keep. So sort of looking at where their heart is as opposed to what the sort of surface expression is. Is something I think that's important. Another is to be honest and real with ourselves and not shy away from pain. Yeah. Like I think it's a very natural human thing. Like we shy away from pain. Like you your hand gets close to a flame, you pull it back, yeah. it hurts. We don't want that. That experience that I had the first time I met Faith, where she ended up talking on a very deep level about some incredibly personal experiences was the most palpably painful conversation I can remember having with a patient. And so what we did is we didn't run away. We didn't change the topic. We sat with that and honored it. And then we also tried to take care of each other. My first step after leaving that room was to get our team, especially our two learners into a room privately and say, are you guys okay? Because like I've been at this long enough that I think I have a few resources to cope. And I was like, I looked at them and they were shell shocked. They were ready for something, but they weren't ready for that. And so we need to make sure that we create that space to honor that. Because if we had walked out of that room and said, okay, let's put some orders in the chart and go see the next patient. I think sometimes people in my business, we sweep so many things under the rug, the rugs are practically levitating. You know, there's so much that's gotten swept under them and we got to, we got to stop that or else we're not going to be able to really be present for people. Doing that work personally is really necessary. At the same time, even the best of us are never a hundred percent, right? Like I try to bring my A game every day to work, but I'm never perfect. Not even for a split second, all I can do is the best with what I've got. Sometimes my best isn't close to what I wish it were. And other people, sometimes their best is exceeding every expectation. So I think to be the best we can be, we need to do that internal work. A lot of it too depends on what kind of profession or area of medicine you're in. If you are doing more of a procedural, interventional kind of thing, then you need dexterity and professionalism and things like that. You know, there's an old saying in palliative care, like our procedure is a family meeting, our tools, are words, and sometimes the absence of words. So in my business, in my specialty, I think you need that. In other specialties, people do the best they can and they often do an amazing job. And they also have additional skills that I certainly don't have
3: that are really critical. To me, there's, there's medical practice and then there's care. And we say medical care, but we do medical practice. We need providers to really emphasize and amplify the care part of it, right? It, it's both. We can provide just clinical services and that's what you're gonna get is this less caring, less connected service. You're getting your oil changed, right? It, it's not that. We, we need to remember the human in this and the family dynamics, it's medical care. The other thing I would ask is to not only listen, but hear. They'll sit there and they listen to the patients, they listen to the parents, but they're not hearing because they're so busy formulating their opinion, but they're not actually hearing what's the driver behind a sense of urgency or why is somebody so scared or why are they so frustrated? Dig beyond the immediate interaction to understand what is really being said, balance the clinical with the compassion. If we could get providers to really start looking at, yeah, here's the medical thing that I know we should do through, through textbooks, through training, and through practical application. Here's the clinical approach we need to take. Now, let me pause for a minute and actually demonstrate some compassion to hear, why is this upsetting this person so much? Why are they pushing so hard on this? Why are they withdrawn, right? And that's the compassion side. When I've spoken to other parents that are either beginning a journey or well into it or sadly at the end, I think it's so important. The simplest way is be present. Be present, have a voice, trust but validate. There's so much information available to us. You can research and ask questions and don't just sit in the back of the room and let the providers come in and work with your child and you just are there just to hear it. Ask the questions, dive in, ask how their child is feeling. Even at at a youngest age, Faith was four years old and yet both her mom would say, well, how do you feel about that? What questions do you have? Make them a part of the process. You're removing some of the burden that comes with everything being done to them. They've lost all control. So be present and help your child and yourself navigate that whole journey by asking questions, seeking to understand, finding your voice. And I think probably the last thing is acknowledge your emotion, dad or mom. You're going to be scared. You're going to be, it's terrifying. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be sad. You're going to be angry. Those are all very real, they're valid, and you're going to experience them at different times. Allow yourself the space and the grace to feel them, and then be wise enough and strong enough to pull yourself out of them so you don't get lost within them, so you can go back to being present.
0: Well, that was very wise, and I'm sorry you have become so wise. Jaris, given how you describe sort of the systemic nature or the interdependent nature of the things that were going wrong in Faith's body, responding to things that were designed to treat the thing that had come before. Did Faith ever ask, did she reflect? And if this is a painful question and you don't want to answer it, please just ignore it. These things to save her, they had to be done, but then they were causing her pain later. How did she hold that how did the two of you talk about that if at all
3: so in terms of regret and looking back on faith's journey and her view on that i would offer that both her mom and i and faith together the three of us and then one on one we we all talked about it multiple times through the you know the 13 years that she experienced all this and i think that the right place to start is with her mom and i because we made the initial decisions. Right? I mean, we made all the decisions. And when we were first diagnosed with cancer, because of the nature of the location of the osteosarcoma and what we were told is, you know, standard protocol for osteosarcoma back then in 2007, which still actually blows my mind that this was the common protocol even in 2007. It sounds so civil warish. Was normally because it affects legs or arms, typically big bones the common standard protocol was to go to the next joint up, amputate, chemoradiate. And that just, that truly just, in, in I'll never forget, in September of 2007, her mom and I are at the hospital, and, and they're telling us this is the protocol. Our minds are like, how do you wrap your head around that, that that's still what we're doing? We're just cutting off limbs, right? And then, of course, they went on to explain, well, we can't do that because it's in her spine. And they immediately started talking palliative hospice care at that point, that was the very first direction. And that's when I told him, I'm like, that's unacceptable. I I don't believe in can't. We're gonna come back in a week and you're gonna have options for us. And her mom and I came back up, we started talking through these options. And of course they gave us all the warnings and there was multiple warnings along the way. There was multiple procedures, multiple situations that were caught going. You know, at one point I remember when we were in Boston her mom and I had to give approval for the radiation because the location, even though it was specialized radiation to where it wasn't full body, it was very specific, it was still going to take a chance of sterilizing her. It was going to hit her ovaries. And we had to make that decision. Do we save, try to save her and prolong her life, but we're going to you know, decrease the likelihood of her being a mom? Of course, we're going to fight for her and worry about those other consequences later. So we made multiple decisions time and time again like that. And her mom and I through the years, we would always sit back and say, "Should we have done that? Should we have done that?" But when you're faced with the alternative, if you don't, you know the answer is she's gonna die. right? And so I can say we live with regret every day. But if we wouldn't have taken those steps, we wouldn't have gotten eighteen years with her. Looking back now, you know a little bit over a year of losing her, and we'd see the the pictures and the videos and the memories we have, we wouldn't have had those. We wouldn't have known the person that she grew to be, we wouldn't have been touched and quite frankly educated in the world of being able to balance both extreme strength and kindness and 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 that's what I see from faith that's what I took from faith is this person that is is stronger than i'll ever be in life. And yet also a billion times kinder than I can ever begin to try to be and how do you bring those both together. We wouldn't have witnessed that if we wouldn't have made those hard decisions. We would have lost her sooner. Would we have prevented years of pain and discomfort? Yeah. And this is selfish to say, but I think the loss would have been greater than the cost because the journey with faith was so beautiful. It really was. In faith, there is many times that she would talk with both her mom and I and and one-on-one and share that there's times when she was down emotionally and she would say things that she wished that we never would have saved her that she, it would have ended sooner because she was so tired of the pain. She was so tired of the journey. She was truly afraid of growing up more and, and starting a life with somebody because she knew she could never have children. And that wasn't because of fertility, is her body couldn't handle it, she knew that. At 15, she knew she couldn't carry a child. She was scared about getting into a long-term relationship, even at, you know, that like a normal teenager should because she knew she couldn't offer them what they were seeking. Her mom and I just talked about this last week, that we all knew she wasn't going to live a a full life, but none of us really accepted that it would be this short of life either. So we were all caught off guard, but I think Faith knew far better than we did. I think, I think Faith really knew that she didn't think it was going to be 18, but I think she really knew that it wasn't going to be 30 either. As much as she at times regretted the journey because it was so painful and, and sad to her. She was sad. She was more sad than she was ever angry because she had this thirst for life and funny and witty and comical. I mean, she, I mean, she just wanted to live so much and everybody she lived around and interacted with her. She brought joy to them. So I think she was always caught in this battle. of I wish I would not be going through it, but yet I'm having these moments of fun along the way, too. For each of us in our own ways, it was a journey of contradictions, even after losing her on one of my many kind of reflection points, it struck me that, you know, I couldn't be mad at, you know, God, the universe or whatever, that she was gone because she and I had sat multiple times in hospitals through recovery, literally holding each other's hands as she prayed to be taken because she was so tired. And so how do you how do you get mad at the universe or God or whatever for taking her when you would sat with your child and prayed with her that it would happen? Contradiction. The whole journey was an experience of contradiction and it doesn't change. It hasn't changed, you know, a year later. One thing that I finally settled on after, you know, 14 months of reflection, the journey both her mom and I went through watching your child go through all this and then quite literally holding her as she died one would think that you would never do that again right because it's tremendously painful but the joy of faith man I'd sign up for it 10 times over to get those 13 years again those 18 years I'd sign up again and again it was such a gift to be her dad she gave me far more than I could ever give her
1: Thank you for listening. For more stories and conversations as well as videos, downloadable guides and decision-making resources in English and Spanish, visit courageousparentsnetwork.org. CPN is available 24/7 for parents and providers as they strive to provide the best care for the child and the entire family.